welcome to the JDF1 podcast. Today I'll be talking about the Bahrain Grand Prix 2018 and what a race it was. We had overtaking galore, tyre strategy delight, frustrations for Lewis Hamilton, an unfortunate incident in the pits involving Kimi Raikkonen and a super, super close finish between Sebastian Vettel and Valtteri Bottas. Was it worth the replay? Well, let's get into it, shall we? You know, one of the great things about Formula One is you can have a bit of a disappointing race. And let's face it, the first race of the, the season, the new season in Australia a couple of weeks ago was a tad disappointing. It wasn't a terrible race by any stretch, in my opinion, but there was a distinct lack of overtaking, which signaled quite a big concern going into the 2018 season. And there was also a real lack of interesting strategy going on. We just never really saw the, the race develop into something that we couldn't predict. Well, two weeks on, the Bahrain Grand Prix and all of those frustrations, I'd say, were well answered. Was this worth the replay? If you did not see this race live, is it worth going back and watching this race? I would definitely give it a thumbs up. Now, it's not an absolute classic. I wouldn't say it's a race that's going to be repeated for years and years to come. Uh, for younger generations to sort of say, look, do you remember that race in Bahrain in 2018? I've seen the replays of that. I was only three years old, but I heard about it. You know, it's not one of those races, uh, but it was a really, really good race. And why was it a good race? Well, the biggest problem coming out of Australia was, of course, overtaking, despite the fact that a third DRS zone was added to the Melbourne circuit. We did not see any real overtaking. There was only one or two genuine overtaking moves that went on uh, outside of the pits. It was a real disappointment and a real worry because of the modern Formula One cars and the amount of extraneous aerodynamic pieces and turning vanes and what have you. They have all over the top of the cars, creating so much aerodynamic turbulence that a car cannot follow um, the car in front when they're trying to get past. So that, you know, it's a big problem. But uh, Bahrain didn't have that issue at all, in fact. Um, the FIA did, before the Grand Prix weekend started, decide to extend the main DRS zone on the home straight by an additional 100 metres to try and make the DRS even more powerful going into Turn 1. And I have to say, uh, I think the DRS was actually a little too over overpowered. Um, maybe a 50 metre increase would have done the trick. Uh, but it certainly did pay off in terms of giving us more overtakes. And in... Given a choice between some decent artificial overtakes using DRS and no overtakes at all, I would prefer the DRS. That's just my opinion. Uh, if you disagree with me, please post your comments um, in the post here for the podcast. Anyway, so yes, the, the replay was absolutely worth it. We had a lot of overtaking, particularly early in the race. The first few laps were very fraught. Um, and it wasn't just the DRS zones, the two DRS zones in Bahrain. It was down into turn three. It was down into the last corner. In fact, drivers were looking all over uh, the track for good overtaking opportunities. And it was, it was one of those starts of the races that really gets you excited for the afternoon ahead because you really don't know who's going to be where for very long. So that was a big boon to Formula One. And it goes to show that it depends on the track and it also depends on the attitude of the drivers as well. I think the drivers were really letting themselves go 
at this track a bit more. I think there was a bit more caution in Australia, perhaps because there are bigger runoffs at Bahrain, perhaps because we've got the season started, everyone's relaxing a little bit. Who knows? There are lots of different factors that can influence how aggressive drivers are in their overtaking uh, opportunities. Speaking of aggression, uh, Max Verstappen was in the headlines for this race because he started for 15th, unfortunately, because of a crash in qualifying, which he says was down to a, an unexpected boost of 150 brake horsepower from his Renault engine, uh, which caused him to spin and hit the barriers early in qualifying. Now, we have to take his word for that. We don't know if that's actually true, but I suspect it probably is. Max is an excellent driver, after all. So anyway, he was starting very low down, and, and Lewis Hamilton was starting low down because of a gearbox penalty in ninth place on the grid. And within the first... It was either lap two or lap three, something like that. Uh, very early on in the race, we had Max Verstappen go for a move down the inside of Lewis Hamilton uh, and bang wheels with Lewis. In fact, it was a fantastic move. It was very exciting to watch. Was it aggressive? Sure, it was aggressive, and we'd expect no less from Max. Lewis was very unimpressed, though. Uh, after the race, he uh, was watching a replay and uh, decided to call Max uh, and wait for it. This is an expletive coming up. Call him a dickhead because uh, of his uh, over-exuberant move. Now, whether you think Max is a dickhead or not is entirely up to your own personal preference. I've never met the man. I don't know what he's like on a personal level. But at the end of the day, you'd have to say he was the one who really suffered as a result of his own move because he suffered a puncture in the bangy wheels of Lewis Hamilton, which led to him trundling around back to the pits and having to change tyres, but unfortunately his diffuser was too badly damaged from the, the damage he sustained from the initial uh, collision and driving with a, a you know a tyre carcass around the track is uh, is very poor for your car. It lowers the ride height, you're scraping bodywork along the floor, you know, it's going to do a lot of damage, So as well as the bits of tyre flying off and hitting the bodywork. So unfortunately Max didn't last very long in the race, and Danny, Danny Ricciardo, Daniel Ricciardo, his, uh, his erstwhile teammate at Red Bull didn't last any longer either. In fact, both drivers retired within a few seconds of each other in this race, in what was a disastrous race for Red Bull. Uh, an electrical shutdown caused Danny Rick to go out of the race. Um, this is an issue that re the Renault engines have suffered in the past. I think it's related to the energy recovery system. Uh, the battery's failing, basically, in the energy recovery system. Really disappointing. And as Danny Rick said on in interview himself, you know, Formula One can really rip your heart out. You know, you got to you got to think these guys. They travel all over the world. They go to this far flung place. They spend probably several days before the race, in fact, preparing, doing work in the simulator, talking about setups and what have you. They turn up at the Grand Prix circuit. They do their their circuit walks on the Thursday. They do their briefings. They do Friday practice. They refine the car. They do qualifying, and they finally get to the race. And they've done all that work. They put all that preparation into trying to maximise their opportunities for a great result. And what happens within a few laps? The car just goes, bing, stop, shuts down, and it's all over. How frustrating. One really needs to feel for Danny Rick, even if you don't feel for Max, because you feel his, his move was too aggressive. But not a good start to the season for Red Bull. The silver lining, however, is that they clearly have got a faster car, a more together car, and... and mostly a more reliable car than they had this time last year. So I would not discount Red Bull at this point. The next race is China. They have a good record in China. I wouldn't be surprised if they were right up there um, in China. So uh, Red Bull fans don't need to get too upset too soon. The other aspect of the race that uh, was really interesting and good to watch was tyre strategy. After the early sort of melees that went on in the track, the lots of overtaking moves that were going on, the race settled down as it does. You know, everyone gets into their 
their sort of their race runs. You know, um, you need to worry about fuel conservation and tire preservation. So, you know, you don't see the frenetic attempts to overtake going on for too long into the race, which I guess is a, a shame. But that's modern Formula One for you. But you have to say Pirelli did an excellent job with their tire choices for this race. Um, we definitely had a situation where it was not at all clear what strategy was going to be best to deliver the fastest result on the day. A lot of teams started off trying the one-stop strategy. Um, they started on the super soft tyre, going to the soft tyre and trying to make the soft tyre last till the end of the race, coming in around that sort of 17 to 20, that kind of area, and uh, and trying to make the soft tyre last to, what was it, 57 laps, something like that, around Bahrain. Um, for most, it didn't work. It was It was clear that what was better, one-stop or a two-stop, it was difficult to know. And a lot of teams actually abandoned their one-stop strategies. Um, Fernando Alonso in the McLaren, for example, um, put on the medium tyre very early on, but had to abandon his effort um, and put the super softs on for the last 15 or so laps. We saw a lot of this mixture. You know, some drivers were on the softs, some the super softs and some the mediums. And there was a lot, lot of ebb and flow. And the fantastic thing about that is is that's what we want to see from tyres in Formula 1. Tyres are one of those factors that can influence the results of a race. You you get all kinds of scenarios um, that can crop up when you have tyres that degrade in the right way at a track. Obviously, Pirelli tyres, historically, in their, their stint in Formula 1 since they came back in 2011, uh, have... You know, in the early days, they were very high degrading, and that was highly criticised, even though it did make the races more interesting. I think Pirelli, for this race in particular, they got the balance just about right, because the tyres weren't falling apart, but at the same time, there was a real sense of, what should we do? And the teams really didn't know what best to do with the tyres at this track. Bahrain, obviously, the Sakir circuit is very rear-limited. Um, it's it's all about traction. It's all about trying to look after the rear tyres, because a lot of deep traction zones and heavy braking zones... So we saw, you know, a lot of pressure on the tyres and, you know, thumbs up to Pirelli. They did an absolutely fabulous job and um, we really didn't know to the end what was going to be the best tyre strategy. So that was a great uh, plus for the Bahrain Grand Prix 2018. Someone who didn't have the best of races. um, Well, let's caveat this. He didn't have the worst race, didn't have the best race. Lewis Hamilton, the reigning world champion. Uh, Another race which, in theory, he probably could and should have won. Um, under normal circumstances, he got a five-place grid penalty for a gearbox change going into qualifying. And uh, unfortunately, he was only able to end up fourth on the grid, which is unusual for Lewis. If he put it on first, then um, he would have been started back in about sixth. But unfortunately for him, he actually had to start ninth because the Ferraris were quickest in qualifying, which is very interesting. The Mercedes, just like last year and just, in fact, recent years, struggles on high degradation, high temperature tracks such as Bahrain. This is obviously uh, a nice bit of news for those who are a bit uh, a bit fed up with Mercedes domination. And we got to see an all-Ferrari front row, which has been quite unusual in recent years. I think it was the first for quite a while. Uh, going into the first corner, Kimi Raikkonen did lose his advantage to Valtteri Bottas. He was third on the grid. He managed to split the Ferraris, and that put a lot of interesting pressure on the Ferraris going into their pit stop strategy, as uh, Sebastian Vettel didn't have his wingman behind him in order to disrupt Valtteri Bottas's race or hold him up in any particular way. But uh, going forward into the race, uh, we saw some divergent strategy. We saw uh, Mercedes kind of gaming Ferrari 
into trying to stop um, maybe a bit earlier than they wanted to. And when Sebastian did stop, he put on the soft tyre with the intention of coming in again at a later time and putting in fast enough times in order to get far enough ahead in order to maintain his advantage over Valtteri Bottas, who put the medium tyre on. Now, unfortunately uh, for uh, Valtteri Bottas, the strategy didn't quite work. It was a very clever play from Mercedes, and they did manage to bring, as I was mentioning about Lewis Hamilton, they managed to bring him into play. But it was a very frustrating afternoon for Lewis because of the problems he had getting through traffic. He had problems with his radio where he couldn't hear properly what uh, the instructions he was getting from the team. But also he wasn't entirely clear on what his strategy should be or how hard he should push. Again, this is the modern Formula One. How hard do you push the tyres? You can push them 100% all you like, but you're going to burn them out. And it's all about management. It's all about managing your pace. It's about... You know, all the teams have their data in front of them. They've analysed the the optimum pace for a race. It's like, if we hit these lap time targets, this is going to be the fastest way to get through a race. Again, this is modern technology for you. It's the genie is out of the bottle. We can't put it back in. Uh, you could try and ban this data. On, you know, One of my articles on my um, my website, jdf1.tv, you'll see that I, one of my ideas from proving F1 would be to limit the amount of data that teams can use to analyse uh, strategy at the race weekend. I think that would help the sport because it would put more emphasis on the driver, making decisions and not just being told by dozens of engineers uh, who've done the maths exactly how fast to drive. But there you are, that's a, that's a subject for another day. So Lewis Hamilton got very frustrated. He got close in the end. He got pretty close, uh, managed to finish third. But... Um, Problems going through traffic. He got a bit frustrated. He wasn't in his best this weekend, Lewis Hamilton. Obviously, when you have a a gearbox penalty and it puts you right back towards the back of the top 10 to start, it's always going to be an uphill struggle. He made good progress early on. He got right up towards the front runners, but he was always going to be up against catching the Ferraris, who had plenty of pace, and, of course, Valtteri Bottas, who uh, managed to run second uh, throughout. So frustrations for Lewis Hamilton. Another podium, though. Uh, decent haul of points. It's obviously very early on. We've got 21 races this year. We're only two races in, so there's no need to panic yet. Lewis Hamilton fans, uh, Lewis is still right in there. And he just needs a little bit of luck to go his way, really, before I'm sure he starts to chock up the wins. So that was Lewis Hamilton's day. Um, there was an unfortunate uh, end to the day for Kimi Raikkonen, and even more unfortunate for his uh, one of his pit crew. Uh, we had yet another unsafe release from a pit stop in Formula One. Now, I remember the good old days in Formula One where we had the lollipop man at the front of the uh, pit crew. He would literally be holding a lollipop telling you to stop and then he'd twist it over and tell you to go and he'd lift it up and you would go when he could see all the mechanics had changed the tyres and back in the day finished refuelling, etc. So he knew it was safe for you to be released. In recent years, the teams have switched to the traffic light system, which is a, literally just a red and green light that's sort of stuck on an awning above the driver's head. This is seen as a more efficient and quicker system to use, but of course it does have bugs, it does have problems, because you don't actually physically have a man there looking at each tyre and thinking, right, this is safe to release. It's not to say that the lollipop man never made mistakes, of course. He would occasionally make mistakes, and then he lifted up, the driver would go, and then he'd slam the lollipop back down on the car to try and stop the driver from leaving his pit box. That would happen occasionally. But I have to say, the, the traffic light system is is difficult and dubious. I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, actually, um, especially as we've had yet another unsafe release, because in this scenario, the unfortunate uh, situation was that uh, Kimi Raikkonen's rear left tyre had not come off. 
they were trying to change tyres, they couldn't get it off. Uh, the green light went on. Uh, Raikkonen drove away, as he would. Not his fault, of course. He just followed the traffic light. And the, the uh, mechanic holding the, the new tyre to go on, standing in front of the rear tyre um, that was still attached to Raikkonen's car, and uh, unfortunately drove over the mechanic, um, drove over his leg. And unfortunately, the mechanic uh, suffered a broken leg and needed surgery uh, in the local Bahrain hospital. He's fine, which is the good news. Uh, the bad news is Kimi Raikkonen just had to stop instantly in the pit lane, just a few, couple of garages down from Ferrari. And uh, that was the end of his race. So another bit of bad luck for Kimi Raikkonen. He's, he's been pretty quick beginning of this season. Typical of Kimi in recent times. You feel like when there's a crucial moment for him to pull out something special, he's not doing it, especially in qualifying. You see him being very quick all weekend in Friday practice. Sometimes he's quicker than Seb. Uh, this year so far, he's actually been quite consistently quicker than Seb. But then it comes to qualifying, when it comes to bringing out that extra spark, that extra q tents, he hasn't really had that. Uh, having said that, he drove very well, very well in Australia and he got caught out by the virtual safety car and really ought to have finished ahead of his teammate, but didn't. Um, so he got unlucky there. And in this race, of course, he was running a solid third. He probably... He probably should have been challenging uh, Valtteri Bottas maybe a bit more. That might be a bit harsh to say that, actually, because Bottas was very quick in the Mercedes. But, you know, it wasn't a terrible race from uh, Kimi Raikkonen. He was in amongst it. But to have to retire and lose out on a podium finish because of that incident is, is very sad. And, you know, I, I think there's definitely should be discussions uh, with the FIA about banning the traffic light system and going back to the lollipop system. I think it's safer. We've seen a lot of unsafe releases. Of course, we saw it with the Haas both Haas drivers in Australia, where both of them were released early and uh, without a wheel properly attached. And of course, it ruined both their races and uh, meant they didn't score any points whatsoever, even though they could have finished fourth and fifth. So it's not a good situation for Formula One when team when cars keep getting released early from the pits uh, when they're not ready to do so. And of course, it is dangerous if a wheel flies off because it hasn't been fully attached and it bounces over a fence and hits the, hits the fans or hits a marshal. Then that's a horrible story for Formula One. Speaking of which, um, Roman Grosjean was in the wars in this race, um, and uh, he had pieces of barge board um, and vertical turning vane and all sorts uh, flying off his car. And uh, in fact, there was a shot when he was going down the main straight, and a piece came flying off and just fired like an arrow into the fencing, uh, protecting the fans. Uh, and I'm surprised because there was no, there were no. Uh, orange and black flags showed, shown to Roman Grosjean, which means that, you know, the, the car is dangerous and it should come in. Um, again, the FAA are trying not to interfere too much in the running of the race. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I do fully understand that. And I'm glad that there wasn't too much interference from the stewards in this race, uh, despite the fact there were a few uh, close close battles that, that could have, uh, you know, could have warranted looking at the, the, I thought the stewards did a very good job, by the way. But um, yes, bodywork flying off, just like wheels being loose from pit stops, is not a good thing for Formula One. And I think uh, they should be very, you know, considering how, how hot the FIA are today on protecting the driver from harm, I really think that uh, the same sort of attention should be given to protecting the fans as well in those situations when we've got pieces of flying bodywork because that, you know, no one wants to see a piece of bodywork fly into the crowd and hurt someone. That would be a hideous thing. So, uh, yes. So more frustrations in the pit stops and this time for Kimi Raikkonen, a bit of bad luck once again. The, another good thing about this race, 
probably the, the final good thing about this race was the final finish, the close finish we had between Sebastian Vettel and Valtteri Bottas. This is not a finish we'd actually would have expected. Mercedes were, as by their own admission, were 90% confident they were going to win this race based on the strategy they managed to execute. They'd somewhat, as I said earlier, gamed uh, Ferrari into a two-stop strategy. And Mercedes were comfortably on a one-stop and looking very good with Valtteri Bossas having some decent pace left in his car. And Sebastian Vettel getting on a, being on ever-aging soft tyres. These tyres ought to not have lasted more than about 25, 30 laps, I believe, but he managed to make them last about 10 laps longer than they ought to have lasted in order to finish the race. This was superb tyre management for Sebastian Vettel. He, you know, This is where he really shows his quality. You know, Let's not forget, I mean, Seb has his issues with his attitude when he gets into close quarters and, you know, like banging wheels with Lewis Hamilton at Baku last year and... And also he gets very frustrated when he doesn't have a car uh, that's competitive and he gets very abusive and all that sort of thing. Um, so he can be a bit petulant, Seb. But apart from that, he is an absolutely superb driver. He's one of the very best in the sport. He's a great champion. And that was great champion's drive from him today. The onboard footage showed the times he was actually getting wheel spin um, a good you know 50 metres down a straight after a corner. That's how bad his, how much his rear tyres were screaming and giving up um, grip. But he managed to keep it on the road. He managed to keep just enough pace. And Valtteri Bottas got so close, so close. In fact, he finished the race just six-tenths of a second behind Sebastian Vettel. It was literally going on to the last lap was, was Bottas's only opportunity to overtake Seb down the main straight into Turn 1. And he wasn't quite close enough. I mean, we can criticise Bottas, and I've criticised him a, a fair amount. Um, in fact, in my Super 8 predictions, I predicted he wouldn't have a good race. I predicted he would still be suffering uh, from what I think was a bit of nervousness and a maybe bit of overdriving from Australia when he had his crash um, and failed to progress as quickly as maybe he could have. Um, based on what we know now, in fact, um, I think that was more to do with uh, management of engine temperatures. Uh, I think Australia, the, the pressure on cooling in Australia was a bit more than some of the teams anticipated. So we've got to give him a bit of a pass on that. In fact, the fact that he failed to pass as many people he did in the Australian Grand Prix. So Bottas, I'm upgrading him in my mind um, to being a bit better than he was. Than how I saw him going into this race, I think he drove a very solid race. Again, not spectacular, but very solid. He did out-qualify Lewis, let's not forget, on in terms of time. Obviously, Lewis had his penalty, but in terms of time, he was ahead of him on the track. And he drove very well, and he came within a whisker. He could have thrown one up the inside, Danny Rick style, uh, which would have been spectacular to see, but I can fully understand why he would have seen that as uh, a, you know, a little too far, a bit too much. So you can't really criticise him for that. If he'd had one or two more laps, then we really could have seen something, and that would have been, you know, would have been a spectacular victory. But what's so brilliant is to see those top running cars so close together. And I'm fully confident that under the right circumstances, we'll see the same with Red Bull as well, once they get over some of these niggling uh, woes that they've, they've suffered early in the season, a bit of bad luck and a bit of mismanagement here and there. Um, it's a bit messy from Red Bull right now, but I'm sure they will be up there in the fight um, in the coming races. And in fact, in China, I'm tipping them to be right up there because I think, you know, they've got a good record at the Chinese Grand Prix. So yes, a really close finish and a superb drive from Sebastian Vettel. Lewis Hamilton finished 
five, six seconds further back. He was just too far back um, and suffered a bit in traffic and had a bit of a scruffy race here and there. Didn't get the right communication from the team um, in order to get the right management of his tyres and to push in the right places. So he was never quite in the fight, which was a shame. But, uh, you know, you have to give it to Sebastian Vettel, a fantastic drive. Um, and how well set up is he for this this uh, championship? Coming out of preseason testing, we didn't expect the Ferrari to be to be right up there at the, at the front. I mean, I predicted them to be the second fastest team behind Mercedes. Most people put them probably third, actually, behind Red Bull. So, fantastic results for Ferrari, particularly Sebastian, particularly Sebastian Vettel so far. Uh, all credits to the Scuderia, and they seem to be getting on top more of their, their car concept pretty quickly. Seem to be getting the setup better, getting the front end into the corners better, which was a bit of an issue they were suffering. And Sebastian Vettel likes a very strong rear end on his car. Um, you know, he was the great proponent of the exhaust blown diffuser era um, and rotating the rear of the car with all that fantastic grip that you would get with the off throttle blowing um, of the exhaust blowing on the diffuser a few years back in the Red Bull and you know so we know he lo he really uh, benefits from a strong rear I think the balance is better with the Ferrari now I think he's definitely benefiting from that and he's getting more out of the car and this is great for the world championship and of course the other aspect being the engine power Mercedes are pretty confident that uh, Ferrari are actually outputting this basically the same amount of power as the Mercedes and that's got to be a good thing because we want to see more engine parity we want to see the uh, all the engine manufacturers in F1 being within 2 or 3% of each other, that would be fantastic, and that would certainly lead to some closer racing. Which brings me to my final point of the podcast. Speaking of engines, uh, the Honda engine. The car that finished fourth in this race had a Honda engine in it. And no, it wasn't a bizarre race where half the field retired. It was a very normal race, and yet Honda-powered car finished fourth. Pierre Gasly in the Toro Rosso. He's my driver of the day. Absolutely a driver of the day. In fact, he's a driver of the weekend. He qualified right up there, um, the top five or six, and he finished fourth on the day. Fantastic. Uh, absolutely fantastic drive from Pierre Gasly. And you know what it proved? It proved that that Honda engine is improving rapidly. Now, that begs the question, of course... How much of McLaren's problems over the last few years have been the Honda engine or McLaren itself, its operational practices, its car? Um, I think there's probably, in this scenario, I think it's more to do with Honda improving than it is to do with McLaren being uh, just not producing a good car and blaming it on the engine. There's certainly a bit of that. Now, you could say I'm biased because I'm a McLaren fan. I'm a self-confessed McLaren fan. But, uh, and McLaren themselves did not have a great uh, weekend in Bahrain. They, they managed once again to salvage a decent result, but they were nowhere in qualifying. They really had one of those head-scratching uh, scenarios in qualifying. They looked good in practice. They've been quick in practice. So I think it may have been, you know, is, is that car just no good? Is it is it really slow? I don't think so. I think a few teams struggled, or a few some drivers struggled to really get the car working as they wanted in Bahrain because the, the track it's very hot you've got the difference of team uh, free practice sessions in daylight and then at night um, and you, the car the track is very rear limited um, <clears throat> so it puts a lot of pressure on the rear tyres I think all of those aspects led to McLaren going the wrong direction uh, with their car and then just having a, an issue with their car and how it works on that particular sort of circuit like we've seen Mercedes in Singapore 
consistently struggling and not understanding quite why to get the car going, uh, particularly in qualifying. So I think it was probably more that sort of scenario rather than uh, they just have a terrible car and now it's been exposed. But you know what? The Toro Rosso had a very good result and clearly they got the car, particularly in the hands of Pierre Gasly, working as they wanted to work at that circuit. Is this indicative of a trend? Well, we don't know. It's only the second race. And as we often say, you've got to wait at least probably four races um, in the new F1 season before you get a clear picture of where everyone is because those opening Grand Prix are quite different. The opening race is basically a part street circuit. This race is not a typical Grand Prix circuit either because it's very, very abrasive track surface. It's very rear limited, lots of uh, deep traction zones. So it, again, it's not indicative of most Grand Prix circuits. But I don't want to take anything away from Pierre Gasly or Toro Rosso. They obviously did an excellent job. Pierre Gasly obviously did an excellent job in getting the car into a window where he was very confident with it, where he could push. And he drove a superb race. And you know what? No one was breezing past that Honda going down the straights. Um, he stayed a very comfortable uh, fourth place ahead, well ahead of the chasing Magnussen in the Haas. There was never a situation where it felt like, oh, he's just going to lose, lose his advantage because um, because Honda's so slow down the straights. Now, we know Honda had an issue with their turbo after Australia. They've now replaced that part with an updated part um, in both cars. So they've already used one of their allocated three engines for the year. I don't think it's any secret that Honda will obviously use more than three engines this year for two reasons. One, because they probably will still suffer some unreliability. And two... In the situation they're in, they, they're free to change their engines as much as they like, really. No one's expecting Toro Rosso to challenge for the championship. Obviously, they want to score good points. But there will be strategic engine changes, I'm sure, when updates come along. Having said all that, we've heard a lot of promises from Honda in the past. Apparently, they've got a big update planned for Canada where they aim to add another 25 to 30 brake horsepower. At the moment, with their current engine, they're thought to be only about 10 horsepower down on the Renault. Uh, but, you know, we've heard this before from, from Honda. We've heard lots of big promises and, and a lack of delivery. So uh, so let's let's not hold our breath for now. But this is good. It's good to see Honda finding a little bit of success, you know, having a good result. And uh, clearly they've got a really good relationship going on with Toro Rosso. And uh, long may it continue because we want to see four strong engine manufacturers in Formula One. We absolutely want to see that. As a final thought on uh, the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend, obviously on Friday we got to hear some little bits and pieces from the Liberty's presentation of its vision for Formula One from 2021 onwards. As I said in my article with my blueprint for Formula One, I did not expect uh, Liberty to release uh, the full details to the public, which they haven't done. Uh, but, you know, it's frustrating for us as fans, we'd love to know, but at the same time we will know eventually. And uh, it's important to foster a sense of trust with the teams because that's what Liberty are trying to do. And I think they've played a very shrewd hand. Again, I wrote an article about this um, on the site that you can read. They've clearly thought about this. They've seen the aggression with which Mercedes and Ferrari have put out uh, press to protect their position in Formula One. The fact that they've ganged up as the two most powerful entities in Formula One right now. Uh, is obviously a worry for Liberty. So they played a very shrewd hand. They, they presented a basic blueprint which talked about broad principles for how to improve the sport in terms of the big picture rather than looking at the micro picture of what are the team's objectives 
Let's look at the, the health of the sport as a whole. And when you talk about reducing costs and you talk about increasing competitiveness and you talk about broadening the appeal of the sport, these are all broad strokes that it would be difficult to come out and criticise. If Mercedes or Ferrari release a statement saying that they don't like that idea, they look like the bad guys. And they don't want to look like the bad guys in the press. They want to look like they're the good guys. So it's a smart move from Liberty. Obviously, the teams have seen some more detailed proposals. But again, they're just proposals. Liberty didn't say, right, this is the blueprint. Take it or leave it. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to hit the microphone that loud. <laughs> they, did not, they did not say, right, this is it. This is our plan. You don't like it. You can bugger off. They didn't do that. What they did was they said, right, these are the, this is the vision we have. This is the broad vision, and these are the ideas which you think will achieve that vision, but they're just ideas. You go away, have a look, have a think about it, and come back to us with your ideas or variations or on the proposals, you know, your own amendments, let's say. And that's a very smart way to do it, because, again, the teams are being shown a bit of trust in them, rather than being fought against, rather than being FOM and the FIA versus the teams. We're so, the, Liberty are saying, we're all in this together, let's make this sport better together, and let's try and have as much of the best of all worlds as we can. And I think that's a very smart way to go about it. The teams have all vowed to keep the details secret for now, which they've done. The only thing we've really heard is that there is a, a proposed budget cap, and uh, that budget cap is rumoured to be around $150 million per year. Uh, that's for your operational costs. That's excluding marketing activities and driver salaries, of course. Uh, it's That's quite a bold move. That is a bold move. We're talking just over £100 million, maybe £115 million, £120 million a year. Um, to put it in pers into perspective, Mercedes currently spend roughly $400 million per year, which I guess is about three hundred. million. 30 to 350 million pounds a year, something like that, depending on exchange rate. That's a lot more, of course. Um, so the big teams, the big three teams of Ferrari, Mercedes and Red Bull all spend significantly more than all the other teams. Uh, so that would be a bit of a, a bit painful for those teams to come down to that level. Um, however, you know, th this is great news uh, for the likes of Williams, uh, for example, a small, you know, a much smaller team these days. They're losing their title sponsor next year. Big blow, losing a lot of money as a result. Um, Claire Williams said she was pretty much ready to open the champagne after hearing this proposal because this represents effectively saving the team. Um, you know, if you can compete for $150 million, just over £100 million, most teams can cope with that. Most teams can work to that and they know they can be competitive to that amount of money. That, in modern Formula 1 terms, is a small budget, you know, a small to medium-sized budget for a Formula 1 team. Most teams spend more, probably most teams spend more than that or around that, and just two or three of them probably spend less. So um, it's very good for the likes of Williams and for Force India, another uh, independent team who don't have any real manufacturer backing and uh, struggle financially. Uh, so, yes, uh, this is all good proposals. And, of course, the other the broad strokes of proposals themselves were to do with uh, improving overtaking, making the engines louder, cheaper, uh, and also more competitive, bringing them together. So, you know, there's, there's, there's some nice broad strokes here that we can all pretty much agree with. I don't know if there are any more detailed proposals on little, little things here and there, the sort of things I wrote about in my article, Blueprint to Improve Formula One. But uh, I, we will find out in due course. But I'm cautiously optimistic that what Liberty have proposed is going to be very good for Formula One in the long term. As long as 
they can get the teams properly on board. And I think that budget cap of $150 million, that's going to be the biggest sticking point for the big boys because that means redundancies. That means de- you know scaling down their facilities. And that's the thing the teams are most get most frustrated about, the idea of having to... Having to get rid of people, having to tone down their facilities in order to meet a cap, that's that's their biggest issue. So Liberty have got a challenge there, but they've certainly taken a shrewd approach to dealing with the problems of Formula One. That's it for my podcast today. I hope you enjoyed my review of the Bahrain Grand Prix. Keep tuned to JDF1.tv for lots more insights into the world of Formula One, more articles. I'll be bringing special guests onto podcasts in the future. And uh, any comments you have, any feedback you'd like to leave, please feel free to visit the article on my website and uh, leave uh, leave a comment. And if you want to message me direct, you can email me, me at jdf1.tv. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I'm looking forward to China in just a week's time. Hey!